Welcome everyone to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. In this episode, we are going to be speaking with Kyle and Brian. They are both Army veterans. Brian lives here in Arizona currently and has for the last 10 years or so. He and Kyle met, even though they both were born and raised in Wisconsin, they met in Texas when they were stationed there in the Army. And then they built their friendship while they were deployed overseas. Um, Kyle is a disabled vet. And he was able to get a awesome, awesome tag from Outdoor Experience for All. He was able to get a tag from Eddie Corona at the Outdoor Experience for All in one of the most coveted spots in all of Arizona for bugling bull elks. And that was Unit 9. So luckily for him, he was able to capitalize on a donated tag. And he got the call earlier this year. He was able to fly out and prepare and get all the logistics behind such hunt. And Brian, his friend, picked him up from the airport. And our one and only Mike Ornoski was able to help with that hunt. He was able to be the caller, did the the cow calls and the bugles in addition with Brian. And Brian was right there being able to do the yardage and capitalize and be be able to build confidence for Kyle with this being his first hunt. So please tune into this episode. You will hear Kyle as a Midwestern hunter that has never been able to come out west and he capitalize on his uh, on his journey. And tune in, you'll get lots of tactics, um, hear, hear different stories and whatnot about Mike and Brian helping Kyle. And hopefully he will have a successful harvest. In this episode, you'll hear that Kyle and Brian are going to head back up to Unit 9 and hopefully capitalize on a giant bull. Hello, everyone. This is Chet Gray from Christian Hunters of America podcast. We got Mike in studio as well, my co-host. How are you, Mikey? Doing fantastic as always. Good morning, everybody. This is another elk episode, but it's a little bit different. Um, We're going to be talking about elk hunting with some veterans and someone who's new to Western hunting and Western big game hunting. We have Brian and Kyle on the phone today. How are you guys? We're good. I hope everybody's doing good today. Uh, This is Brian, and then uh, I got Kyle right here with me. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Can you guys tell everybody, um, we know a little bit of your backstory about growing up in the Midwest and that you guys met after being deployed um, because you guys are both veterans, but can you give us a little bit of that backstory on how you grew up in the Midwest and how you guys were able to to connect and and share a little bit of uh, hometown with each other when you guys were stationed overseas? Yeah, so I originally grew up um, in Wisconsin, same as Kyle here did. Um, and then back in 2009, 2010, uh, we deployed to Iraq. Um, I met Kyle down at Fort Bliss in Texas um, while we were getting ready to go overseas. And then me and Kyle deployed to Iraq together. Um, we kind of just hit it off as we both had an interest and love for hunting and being outdoors and that kind of stuff so during deployment we talked often about hunting and sharing stories about growing up in the midwest and hunting the midwest or the eastern whitetail um some a little bit of bear hunting and stuff like that is what 
kind of how we kicked it off. Would you agree with that, Kyle? I definitely agree with that. That's uh, pretty accurate with Brian Sater right there, kind of the background and how we got to know each other and uh, kind of created a bond while we were over there and had that common ground. So definitely agree with what he just said on that. That was spot on. When you guys were growing up in Wisconsin, you guys didn't know each other at all, though, correct? Correct, yeah. We didn't know each other. The, we didn't actually start. We didn't know each other until down in Fort Bliss, Texas. That's where we ran into each other, um, getting ready to go to that deployment. And um, just happened stance that, you know, we both grew up in Wisconsin deer hunting. It shows how small of a world it really is, right? Absolutely. When you guys were growing up, did you guys get involved in the hunting because of grandma or grandpas and, and dads, or was it just something that you guys did on your own, and was it mostly geared towards tree stands and, and whitetails? So this is Kyle. I'll start off with my background with it. Um, I grew up in a hunting and fishing family. My dad was, was into it. Wednesday, he was heavily into it, um, just more enjoyed being out in the woods around the water. I started at a pretty young age going with him. He'd let me take along about five years old, whitetail hunting um, on his bow hunts and that. And it is more drawn towards uh, a lot of tree stand hunting and a few ground blinds. You don't get as much spot and stock out there or do that much. Um, I might change my mind after doing this for elk on the ground and the experience with doing that. Uh, I, I feel like I, I like that a lot more, but uh, it wasn't the traditional way that I grew up hunting. Uh, like I said, just tree stands, a few ground blinds, mostly just hunting whitetail. Um, I've had a few friends that took me out on duck hunts, a turkey hunt, um, but I always just had a passion for for whitetail hunting. And I kind of fell off of that with the military and just being busy. And now that I'm um, transitioning out of the service, it's the one thing I'm really looking forward to get back into. And this was a great way to spark that and get it started back up again. So. 100%. Wait till you come out to Arizona once you, when you come back and, and start chasing our, our little gray ghost, the little coos whitetails. They're, they're, they're a lot of fun, but they're a lot different than an eastern whitetail. They're about the third the size. Yeah, that's another bucket list one. That's absolutely on, in the back of my mind already. We don't get to yeah, feed no. them. Uh, we don't get to feed them corn or uh, alfalfa out here, unfortunately. So they don't get near as big, and then everything here wants to eat them. So they're always high strung. But I'm sorry, what were you gonna say, you guys? I cut you off. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I, I mean, basically the same thing for me. Um, I grew up in a big hunting family, um, so I was taken along with my dad and stuff at a real young age. Um, mainly, you know, a little bit of bow hunting and. Uh, where I grew up, it was shotgun for deer. So that's what I mainly did, um, taking along with my dad. And then I started bow hunting at 10 years old. I think I shot my first eastern whitetail at 12 with the bow. Um, you know, did the usual Midwest stuff. So like Kyle said, with turkey hunting and duck hunting and goose hunting and stuff like that. And then uh, after I got out of the service, um I took a job down here in Arizona and I've been here down in Arizona about 10 years now or so. Um, I live down South. So I, I'm, I love hunting those little gray ghosts. I mean, like you said, they're pretty much scared of their own shadow. Right. They're, they're, they're high strung is, um, an understatement. Most of the time you, if you can capitalize on a, on a coos deer with a bow, you are, 
one heck of a hunter to say the least. I mean, even if you're sitting in a ground blind uh, over water in a drought year, it's something to be said about harvesting one. But if you do spot and stock with a bow on a on a coos whitetail, that's that's a whole nother level of hunting. Yeah, I think I was, I don't remember, probably two years ago now, I spot and stocked uh, Sue's buck. He went 117 gross, and then uh, like five, six years ago, I spot and stocked another one with the bow and uh, got him, I think he was grossed right around 107. Good Lord. Good Lord. Kyle, those are enormous. That's like... uh... 160, 170, or even bigger Eastern whitetails. Those are, that's huge. Yeah, when I walked into Brian's uh, Brian's place and I saw the one, the coos deer uh, that he had, and I, my jaw just dropped because I realized and recognized uh, just from photos what a what an average one looks like. And to see the size that he had hanging there, that uh, was along with everything else on the wall. But uh, that was definitely definitely a jaw-dropping moment to see uh, a deer like that. And I you kind of expected out of Brian if anybody's hunting with him, he's a go getter and that and, and very knowledgeable. So, yes, yeah, I do he understand is. a little bit how big those um, those deer are in comparison to uh, to whitetail and the quality and the class that he's hunting. So, I'm excited to come back down and try that too. But focusing on the elk right now. Absolutely, if we can transition, and then you guys talk a little bit about the history and and the brotherhood and how you guys became even better friends once you guys met in the military career. If you want to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So kind of touch back, you know, like I said, we originally met down in Texas. Uh, we deployed over to Iraq. Um, we were first stationed there at Camp Buka, and then we moved up to Camp Taji. Um, like I said, originally, I mean, that was kind of the biggest thing. I mean, it's, um, between the hunting stories and stuff like that, just kind of kept everybody motivated and back in touch with reality um, versus being over there and being away from family and other friends and um, basically made a new family and new friends in the military that, I mean, still lasts to this day, obviously, with Kyle being down here. and um, Staying in touch, it almost becomes a second family and, you know, a whole extra pack of brothers and you know family wise absolutely there's nothing more sacred and having your brothers back having someone six um if anyone been in the military or law enforcement knows that your brothers and sisters are who you rely on and we won't go down the rabbit hole of where the country's going but race creed religion none of that plays into into effect when when you're protecting your brother, sister, whether it's a uh, foreigner, domestic. So, exactly. um, no, I totally, totally understand that that brotherhood or sisterhood, um, there's nothing that breaks that bond and you could go and you miss your loved ones and your, your immediate family members or a spouse or, or whatnot. But when you go over there and you're day in, day out with somebody, um, that's a, a lasting relationship that that will never break. That's sometimes even stronger than blood because of the, the trials and tribulations that you guys have been through, the, the heartache of losing loved ones on the, on the, field, on the battlefield and whatnot. So I, I respect that, and we really thank you guys for your service. 
Um, yeah, we, I mean, we definitely appreciate that. And, you know, um, it definitely made us who we are to this point. And then, uh, I guess the kind of transition from there, um, this all actually began, um, originally Mike, what we met like a year, year and a half ago, give or take Mike. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. I'd say so. We've, uh, kind of just incidentally became friends and, uh, built a relationship and, and, uh, it's amazing how time flies, you know, so <clears throat> for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, so I met Mike, like I said, about a year, year and a half ago, um, with CHA, um, me and Mike had become good friends since then. Um, you know, I've helped out on a couple other CHA members, um, hunts down here for ghoul turkeys and stuff like that, trying to help make sure everybody has an enjoyable hunt. Um, and boy, did they ever. <laughs> yeah, they had a blast. Um, pretty much everybody from CHA that came down here had a, had an amazing trip and, um, we're into birds like crazy, so. Yep, absolutely, and uh, and that I think that's kind of where it's funny how incidental relationships kind of start through CHA and members, and we kind of built a relationship, and then you know your focus of CHA was partnering with another organization that we work with, Arizona Mule Organization, and and your focus down there was uh, building water catchments and hauling water, and we kind of partnered, which kind of led to this uh, elk opportunity. That's kind of our our main topic here is to talk about elk hunting and veterans and. And uh, another organization that we all work closely with that does a lot of great impact is uh, Eddie Corona's Outdoor Experience for All, and a uh, premium elk tag came available, and uh, they were looking for a veteran that kind of dreamed about elk hunting in Arizona that never had an opportunity, and and here we go that Brian has this relationship with Kyle and you know somebody from the Midwest that has only seen elk hunting through videos and reading articles and. Next thing you know, Kyle's flying out to Arizona to come hunt uh, Arizona elk, which was uh, a week ago. And uh, you guys are going to be going back up, finishing up the hunt. And that's kind of the idea behind today's um, you know, podcast and kind of talking is, is the eyes through an individual that's dreamed about elk hunting, lessons learned, and, and what was the experience. And uh, for there's, I'm sure there's a lot of, which I know there's lots of new elk hunters out there that want to have that opportunity. And it'd be kind of neat to kind of see a whole new perspective of somebody that's as you are, Brian, as a part-time guide. Um, you you do work for different outfitters, and you love elk hunting. And I do know that know that sheep is is your your true love. But I can tell after watching you the last few days um, up in elk camp, your love of elk is I, I would imagine it's pretty close to the sheep hunting. So. Oh yeah, I mean, there's nothing like September elk hunting, let alone elk hunting here in Arizona. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to hunt, you know, elk here in Arizona and then elk in New Mexico and stuff. So, yeah, there's nothing, that, you know, that really rivals elk hunting, let alone in September with a bow in your hand. Um, just hearing the elk all night long and getting in and close on them and stuff. But like, as you said, um, my main focus when I am guiding, um, I, I am hooked on the sheep. Um, there's just something about the sheep that I love it's the country they live in and how they survive out there when it you look at the landscape and it looks like there's absolutely nothing to eat or drink or anything and the fact that those sheep can survive out there and you know a lot of that goes back you know to other organizations like you had touched on mike you know um 
I partnered up with Arizona Mule Deer Organization, and obviously that's our prime focus is mule deer. Um, but that doesn't mean um, those drinkers and stuff, they're used by everything, whether it's game animals or non-game animals, from heel monsters and songbirds to coo deer, um, you know, coyotes, everything benefits from what all these organizations are doing, whether it's AMDO or AES. Um, there's a whole laundry list of organizations out there doing good work and hauling water, especially the drought we've been in. You know, we had that drought going on for a long time here in Arizona. So putting water on the landscape benefits everything, you know, whether it's elk, deer, or non-game animals. So uh, that's kind of how I really got into the whole scene. I uh, started guiding a handful of years ago now. Um, and then touched off, you know, with Mike and then Eddie Corona and when that elk tag came available and we're looking for a veteran, uh, Kyle was able to make it down here and that's, that's where we're at. And I spent, well, we were up there for four days, I think, originally with yes. <clears throat> Mike and Kyle and myself and we were in elk every day and um, just didn't get it, get it done yet. Uh, me and Kyle are actually headed back up uh, this afternoon to give it another go around. Yep, that sounds great. So, and, and for Kyle, so I think uh, when I think about a brand new elk hunter that's coming in and then having to fly in, um, so what was your expectations? And I, I know I was pretty shocked when I found out you kind of loaded up the plane and the plane was kind of struggling to get to Arizona because you brought so much gear. And so, what was some of your expectations? Uh, <laughs> As an out-of-state hunter, you know, coming to your first elk hunt, and what are some of the things that now that you kind of realize that maybe I should have left some of that stuff here or I should have brought some other stuff? Well, um, Brian did send me a list of, you know, keep it simple. And I guess I'm kind of one of those guys where we might need this, so I got to bring that. You might need this, you got to bring that. Um, but, yeah, loading, loading up on the plane, getting the phone call, I guess, real quick to go back to that, getting the phone call from Brian in spring uh, that Eddie Corona with Outdoor Experience for All had a tag ready or a tag available um, and asking me if I, I, I wish there was a camera on my face or um, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I was at a loss for words, you know, so it, it's besides whitetail hunting, this was second on my, my bucket list of something I wanted to do. And for him to reach out to me and offer that up, I was just, I felt blessed and obviously a little, uh, pretty, pretty much lost for words when he did that, but accepted that chatted with Brian from then till now. I tried not to, uh, look at the calendar too much. Yeah. That's impossible. (laughs) Yeah. The anticipation was, was intense. I was, I was ready to get down here. Um, and I went out and bought some lighter clothes, um, some different camel and that to bring down here. Wasn't really sure exactly what terrain we were going to be hunting, how warm or cold it was going to be. Brian gave me an idea. We're going to have a lot of warm days and some pretty chilly nights. The morning, the evening sits. You know, you just got to dress appropriately and for running and basically running and gunning to uh, to dress right for that. So you're not sweating like crazy after the first 45 minutes and. But we, when I got down here, Brian picked me up. We went to camp. Mike joined us the next day. That first day in camp, Brian took me out and did a bugle. 
and just hearing that in the wild instead of hearing that over a TV or a computer or your phone, watching videos and dreaming, um, that made my hair stand up. And then the next thing you know, he's got elk bugling back at him, the first stop that we stopped at. So that experience in itself was breathtaking and enough for me to just be engraved in my memory and my mind for the forever. And now you're addicted forever, right? Absolutely. There's, um, I made Brian stop and get, he picked out a call that I can start practicing with Google tube. I'm already thinking about next year. Um, can't wait to go back up today or tomorrow and, and get back into the woods. But, uh, the experience of it all and the camaraderie and the teamwork and effort that goes into this with all of these groups and, and everybody that's out there with that common ground of, of finding an elk and taking an elk. Um, you don't really see that much back in Wisconsin. You know, there's limited public land up there and everybody's kind of in it for themselves. So to see that, you know, having Mike come up, take time away from family and, and, you know, things that, or work or whatever it might be just to come up and help us out and cook some amazing food. I expected to lose 30 pounds here. I think I might gain it, but, <laughs> um, but just to have all that in itself so far is I'm still at a loss for words. It, you, you can't put into words the, the amount of gratitude that you feel, how lucky you feel. I told a few guys that I know when I was, elk hunting down here i was going to unit nine in arizona and they're like you have no idea what how lucky you are how did you get that tag so that's um, yeah, a godsend that uh that eddie corona's out there along with chris denham and they started that outdoor experience for all and there's lots of volunteers with other organizations and mike has one of the biggest hearts of any of our members at cha and is always willing to give yep. always willing to help has been my hunting mentor for for quite a few years and um he, he never ever uh stops giving so that's typical of mike but unit nine is is one of the top three trophy units in arizona that most people maybe draw once maybe twice in their lifetime so it is um it's an honor that you got that but it sounds like it couldn't have gone to a better person so can you expand on what else you brought or um, what else was yeah, your mindset? Did you have a, a goal in mind that you just wanted to get a mature bull? And, you know, does did you buy all your gear? I don't want to jump around with questions. I apologize. But does Wisconsin, if you were buying some of your stuff out there, obviously they're geared to a little bit colder climate and different animals. But most sporting goods stores, if you go to a Cabela's or Sportsman's Warehouse, they're going to have a, a wide range of things with it being a, you know, lighter, lighter weight uh, clothing sure. so that you can uh, hike around and, and not sweat as much as, like you said, when you get that higher elevation, but when you get a heavy pack or or whatnot, you're going to start sweating real real quick. Sure. Um, as far as gear goes and clothing, I mean, I brought my bow down. I, um, I, t- I contacted a guy from HHA, and he hooked me up actually with a site um, and donated that, and that's kind of changed how I've been shooting. But I, I went with heavier arrows and that just to get ready for this hunt. They can, they're multi-purpose. I can use them back home, too. Um, I went with a little wider cutting blade, fixed blade on my broadheads. Uh, adds another almost half inch. So I figured what could it hurt to go with those. Um, as far as clothing goes, I it was kind of tough, honestly, to find 
camel that I would feel fit the landscape and from the, what pictures I could see and, you know, videos that I had watched, um, that would fit the landscape. There wasn't, there wasn't quite as much as you would think there would be up there. Um, so that was a struggle. Um, I guess I put that on the back burner. I didn't think, I thought the same as you said, I could walk in any Cabela's or fleet farm and find clothing that would be readily available since we are Wisconsin and more of that, that cold weather gear would be snagged up. But, uh, yeah, I bought a few different, uh, shirts and camel pants and bibs and that that were lighter weight. Thankfully I found, uh, found in between going through a few stores and that up there. So I have that, um, I brought an extra release. That was a lesson learned for me, whitetail hunting. I climbed up in the stand with my release on and snapped my trigger. And 15 minutes later, as I was packing everything back up, because I couldn't, I didn't feel confident shooting uh, with fingertips. Of course, the shooter walks, shooter whitetail walks by, and I'm sitting there with no means of, of letting an arrow fly. So I, I, sh- I brought an extra release that I shot with that's set to me and I'm comfortable with, just in case that happens again. That's a really um, smart tip that I I haven't even considered. That's a really good tip for everybody to, if you're a bow hunter, redundancy is key on a lot of those uh, tools and whatnot. We always bring plenty of arrows. You make sure your string's in order, but I've never thought of bringing a second release, so I think that's a good tip. And what else? Yeah, I mean, this is Brian again, but, I mean, Kyle, I mean, he had a lot of, extra gear um basically weighed the plane down um <laughs> between you know he was kyle's kyle you know and he wanted to be prepared and whatnot i mean as far as uh, out of state hunter um you know the biggest thing is you know trying to get some gear that's more rated for this climate um the more mild climate so you know a little bit lighter gear as far as your clothing goes um, like Kyle said, he uh, switched over to a little bit heavier grained arrow um, to help with a little bit of better penetration on the bigger animal, um, you know, an elk versus a eastern whitetail. Um, he actually, re- he was so excited for this hunt, he actually reset up his entire bow between sights and arrows and broadheads and strings and everything else. So, I mean, he came by far more prepared Um than usual um he had a lot of extra gear um but extra i guess isn't the worst case scenario but if you're trying to save money you know on bags for airfare and stuff i mean the biggest thing is going to be you know a solid bulk uh bow case so that way when psa is tossing your bow around it doesn't get bumped off or snap a limb or something like that so you know you want a solid bulk uh bow case uh, to protect, because that's going to be one of the most important things. Pretty much everything else you can buy on the fly when you get down here to Arizona, between a Sportsman's, the Cabela's, Best Pro, uh, Ross Outdoors, um, those kind of stores. Absolutely. Um, you know, if I if I had any recommendations for an out-of-state hunter, I mean, I mean, how long you're staying? Um, you know, a couple pairs of hunting clothes and a couple pairs of just normal civilian clothes for at camp um the extra release is a great idea because um especially that way you're comfortable with it so you're not trying to pick up a brand new release or they don't have your release in store so i mean i think that's definitely a checked item 
but make sure you bring along, you know, as an extra release just in case worse, worse comes to worse. Um, beyond that, I mean, you can kind of get by with everything else. I mean, a lot of the Midwest guys, um, even like how I grew up, we're so used to tree stand hunting and, uh, you're kind of in a fixed position up in that tree stand. So scent control is everything because once you're up in that tree, you can't really control the wind at that point. Right. It's not like you can just go, you can't just go to a different tree and get the wind back in your favor. So, um, I noticed that was kind of a thing with, you know, even Kyle and took me for a while to figure out down here too is, um, you know, when you're out hiking these mountains or even the rollers, um, it doesn't matter how little clothing you have on or whatever, you're going to sweat. So, you know, scent comes into play, but as far as mid or Midwest hunting versus Western hunting, um, you know, you don't see too many guys spraying down with the scent eliminators and scent lock suits and rubber boots out here like you do back in the Midwest. Um, so a lot of that gear I would probably leave, you know, back in your home state. Um, down here, the biggest thing for wind control is uh, we play the wind. You know, if, whether we're trying to intercept an animal or, you know, catch up to them or get in front or even sit in water, um, you just find that predominant. If you're going to sit water, you find that predominant wind tide. I mean, that's pretty similar to uh, tree stand hunting you know, and make sure the wind's in your favor. When you're out spotting stalking, um, I know me, Mike, and Kyle ran into it several times where um, we were trying to get ahead of a herd and cut them off to intercept them. And I think that one herd, Mike, while we stood there for 20, 30 minutes trying to wait for the thermals to switch on us. So um, we didn't blow them out. Yeah, for sure. And that was one of our last mornings there. And, uh, we had a bugling frenzy down below us. Um, we kind of figured out their pattern, and we'll get into some of the elk tactics here in a minute, but we basically had some different choices to make. One was to either just kind of sit tight and hope that they're going to come up to us, as they've always done in the last few days, or we'd have to do a huge circle around, which could take a mile, which the time we got there, you know, the bugling frenzy, you know, could have been stopped. But where I think a lot of people would have just tried to rush in because, the you know, you got six or eight bulls screaming, and they're within 100 to 200 yards, but we we knew if, as soon as we made that move, the scent rolling down the hill, they would have just seized up and, and vanished on us. Yeah, I mean, I really think that's one of the, you know, off topic from here a little bit, but still related. I think that's going to be one of the biggest things is Midwest or Eastern hunting. Um, you know, I've had buddies and other clients come in from other states and stuff, and that seems to always be the, one of the biggest things is, you know, um, learning that down here, you just got to play the wind, um, you know, get the wind in your favor, whether that's the thermals or if you got enough breeze to keep the wind steady. Um, cause it really doesn't matter what you spray down with or what you use. Um, you know, elk have great noses. So, and there's usually a handful of them there. So you're not going to, you're not going to win that battle, you know, and as, you know, Chad and stuff like that I mentioned earlier, even hunting these gray ghosts, these food deer, um, you know, they're scared of their own shadows. So same concept goes for whether you're hunting mule deer, spot and stalk, who's deer, um, that, you know, elk, everything. Um, if you're coming from a different state, 
the biggest thing is constantly watch that wind. That wind, the wind is what's going to get you every single time. Um, once you get the wind in your favor, then it's you know trying to watch your movement and make sure you don't get picked off. Um, but step one is always going to be that wind. So touching back on gear, I would kind of, I would recommend leaving all that kind of stuff back home. You know, your sun eliminator sprays and, uh, you know, specialized clothing more for the Midwest. Um, it just doesn't really apply down here all that often. Yep, absolutely. And I, I know some of the days we got done and it was like a nine mile track from the time we left. And I was going to have Kyle kind of talk about that of, I think a lot of people that think about elk hunting, they don't realize the dedication of time investment. So we were getting up. So I'll let Kyle kind of talk about our typical morning and day and what that looked like. We're, we're basically out there in, in the pitch black and, and kind of preparing for the, the sun to come up. So, Sure. Um, real quick on gear, so I did want to mention having at least two pairs of boots that Brian recommended, uh, good, comfy, broken-in ones. Uh, like hiking boots and that was was a ticket plus you have the dew in the morning so one boot's going to get wet you get another fresh pair to put on that is already dried out and then a camel i wear a camel back when i'm out there uh, just to keep drinking water so that was another those are the the only last two items i really thought were important that if you're going to bring or you pick up down here um but just have your boots broken in you can probably find a camel back around here somewhere very good both of those are very good tips even you know even when it's cool out up here in Arizona, you're 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 working that you're working up a sweat constantly, and you got to replenish that. Even if you mix in, you know, plenty of the different little packets of rehydration stuff out there to get your electrolytes back up, because you can start getting sluggish if you're only drinking water and whatnot. You got to re- replace all those vitamins that you're sweating out a little bit and the electrolytes. But the the pairs of boots. Um, are a really good key. Another thing that we usually do is sometimes I do is usually wear uh, a liner sock so that depending on how well your boots are broken in, they you know you're wearing them and whatnot. But nothing nothing gets them in broken in other than being out there on a hunt, and you usually don't train to the extent of what a hunt is. Um, some people do. Some people are going on ten mile hikes through the the crazy woods in order to to get prepared for that kind of stuff but if you get liner socks and wear those thin liner socks and then your your wool or merino wool socks over that then your broken in boots then the friction that you're creating on the on those stalks and the long hikes um gets in between the the liner sock and your merino wool or whatever type of sock you're wearing so that it's not on your on your skin so it helps a lot with relieving blisters and what and whatnot Great idea. I'll think of that. Think of adding that to uh, the next pump. So, yeah, you can get those cheap ones at any sporting goods store, and they're real thin. Um, sometimes it it does get a little bit. You got to get used to wearing two pairs, but once you get used to it, you don't even notice that they're on. So that all that friction is between the sock and the liner sock, and uh, it really definitely alleviates or helps alleviate hot spots and blisters forming. On the the scent checking aspect. Did you guys, Mike taught me something a long time ago. I'm, I'm sure he, you guys are aware of it. Tying just a, a little piece of sewing thread on the front of your stabilizer on your bow. And God forbid something happened to your wind checker on the, you know, the powder or whatever other style you used. It's super cheap and really inexpensive to, to tie a, a string 
just a sewing thread onto the front of that stabilizer. Is that something you guys practice or is that something you guys have used before that when you hold that bow out, then it's a real quick, easy indication of where that wind's blowing? I've never done that, but I'm going to take that tip and definitely add it to, uh, add it to my, um, arsenal of ideas and that. So that's a great, great idea and a great tip. That's compliments of Mikey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's full of them. He's got great ideas all around. So, I mean, as far as I guess, um, for Kyle here, um, how do you envision this thing going? And, you know, like, when you were still back in Wisconsin, um, how do you see this come playing out, you know, as far as the terrain, um, the animals, and you know, that kind of stuff compared to um, when you actually got here on ground? Um, how did that experience all play out between what you originally had in mind and then once you're on ground, seeing it in person, um, you know, how was that experience different or the same um let alone like mike was talking about earlier when we got into all those bulls screaming around us 360 degrees i mean tell more about that experience at this sure. point. Yep. so mike was asking that earlier too talking about the typical morning hunts and that um you can only get so much from watching videos or looking at pictures um so i had a little bit in mind of uh of what the 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 landscape looked like but how diverse it was in that uh, one minute you could be hunting, you know, thick brush and cover and trees. Then the next you could be out in the open. Uh, you'd be sitting over water that's uh, fairly open. So what I had in mind and what I thought of as far as what terrain and that I'd be hunting was totally different. Um, just the hikes in the morning, like Mike was talking about, I think we put on nine miles that, that last morning or maybe the second to last morning. Um, there's such a rush in there with that too. I, I knew I would get, I knew I would get uh, the experience up close and personal, but Brian would tell me time and time again, you know, you're hearing out bugling and it's exciting. That. That's one thing. Just wait, man, just wait, wait till that morning where that one big one lets one out right, you know, right next to you and you can feel the shake. And six. Yeah. We had that experience yep. the last morning. I mean, you were within 30 yards, 30 yards, old, basically growling that deep thunder roll that you can pretty much feel on your soul. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know what? I, uh, when, that, when that happened, I never, I, I, I had this routine that I would do when I was practicing coming down here with a new site and that and getting used to shooting longer distances. That was another thing. Um, getting confident, putting a lot of arrows down range, uh, I'm not quite as uh, confident at anything outside of 80 yards as most, as most of these guys are. 60, I'm comfortable, and 70, I, I, I feel like I can make an ethical shot. Um, but anything outside that, I, I'm just not accustomed to or used to. And I know guys down here shoot 100, 120, 130 yards to practice just to make those 60 to 100-yard shots seem, uh, seem more feasible. But... That morning, like, uh, I would go through a routine when I would knock an arrow back home and, and uh, target shoot, make sure my sight was set, make sure I had the same sight picture, you know, loosen your grip on your, you know, on, on your holding hand. 
I would go through that routine in my head because I knew that when I got down here, I'd get buck fever pretty easy back home. I get, I get doe fever back home pretty easy if I know I'm <laughs> going to take a doe for the freezer. So, um, That's what it's that all about, though. Really, yeah, it really is. It's, but I was, I was super excited. I was, you know, I was elated at what was going on in front of me that morning where there's a, you know, a mature bull at 30, 35 yards and you could step out here or there. So I'm trying to mentally range stuff, uh, um, so that if the bull comes out, I know roughly what range they're at and doing that routine in my head really calmed me down, um, and helped me stay more focused on that and make sure I wasn't making a mistake with my pin, my sight, my shooting lane, you know, every, every little detail that I could look over before a shot presents itself helps me just stay a little more calm, as calm as you can be when you have a mature elk bugling or growling at 35 yards. So um, that's really helped quite a bit. But the mornings have been just as spectacular to go out and we pull up to a few spots. And if we heard a few good bugles, we knew we were going to go in a little before light, start working towards them, play the wind, and knew that we were going to put on some miles trying to either, like Brian and Mike said, cut them off or get in front of them or set up on the downwind side, whatever we needed to do to put that in our favor. Um, and we did that for the first first four morning hunts. That's that's what they were. It was putting on a lot of miles and um, seeing a lot of elk, hearing a lot of elk, just waiting for that right shot opportunity. And I know you guys asked earlier about what my expectations were for, um, for taking an animal, taking an elk while I was down here. Um, I think the experience or that's the situation comes into play. So uh, if you're in the thick brush and like we had the other day, you're only going to have a split second when that, that bull walks out to make a decision. I'm happy taking an animal, a mature animal and thankful for what, um, what I would take. And I would like to make it a mature elk. But as Brian had said, if you look at, if you look at it and you're, you just think that this hunt's been spectacular, it was a great experience leading up to it. You know, every situation is different. If you only had that split second and you look at that rack and you smile inside and you go, yeah, I'm happy with that, then let that arrow fly. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So and I think that's, that's part of the, the issue that I think a lot of people have is they put this image of this monster bull in their head and, and they have to have that, whatever that number is or that size. And I think we've lost a little bit of the why we do what we do and, and to be proud of whatever we harvest based on that experience. And I just, I'm really, that was really exciting to know that that was your expectation coming here. And, and that's always my expectation is I never try to put a score on something. It's just if I get excited and, and that's in that right situation. And, you know, that's really why we hunt because it's about the thrill and the fellowship and, and then ultimately harvesting an animal that we're super proud of. And it really doesn't matter what other people think. It's it's how we feel and, and how our immediate close friends and, you know, we're part of that. You know, to me, that's what makes the hunt, you know, success. You can't put the you can't put the rack in the freezer either. As long as it's a, no, as long as it's true. a bull, it'll still fill the, fill the freezer. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that, yeah, that, that's basically where I'm at with, with uh, the hunt and taking an animal where if the experience leading up to it, is basically every time you look at the, that rack on the wall and you have a good story to tell people back home, um, I'm blessed and thankful for whatever I, uh, if, if I do uh, tag one, I'll definitely be, uh, feel very grateful and thankful and blessed that 
I was given that opportunity and that I was able to succeed in, in filling my, my old tag. So. Absolutely. And I believe that here in the next few days, you're going to have a, a great opportunity. There's no question, um, based on what we, what we learned in, in the areas that we were hunting. And as the elk rut kind of progresses, I mean, it gets better and better. And I'm thinking back, I think it was the second morning, um, we had a bunch of bulls bugling, and all of a sudden it was like somebody turned this light switch on, and, and we literally it was like 360 degrees. We had bulls all around us, and I, I don't know what we think. We have maybe eight, 12 bull, different bulls going crazy. Then we had some, you know, they're approaching. Do you want to kind of expand on how we did that setup and what that kind of felt like um, from a new hunter perspective when you get in the middle of this bugling frenzy and you really don't know what direction to go because there's so many bulls screaming all around us? Sure. Um, yeah, that morning was pretty exciting. I think that was Brian keeps telling me that the the rut's going to progress more and more, and it's going to get even more intense like that. And I was kind of like, I don't know if I can handle much more intense than that. Um, but yeah, we had at least at least eight on the conservative side that were, I would say, within 150 yards of us, 200 yards, bugling all over, and you're just trying to hopefully pick out that one that's getting closer and closer. And it's hard to figure out if that was the same bull, at least for me. Um, you know, we had a smaller six by six come through the brush or a five by five. It was, I think it was that came through the, the thicket. There wasn't even a shot on that one, but that's the one that got closest to me. I think Mike, you had one pretty close to you just down the, the draw, not too far. Um, so your head's on a swivel as best it can be. And you're constantly looking for movement and just trying to, trying to pick out shooting lanes and trying to figure out where these elk are going to come through and, they're constantly bugling and you're kind of put in this, uh, this whirlwind of which one's going to get closer, which one's going to step out, who's going to hit the shooting lane and where do I even look right now? So it was a little, little overwhelming, but in a great way, I will say that it was a lot of fun and a great experience and story. So, yep, absolutely. And I think a lot of people too, don't realize sometimes you hunt elk in the super thick stuff where you can't even see 20 yards in front of you at different times. And, where I think sometimes, you know, you watch these videos and you're in these big, you know, Montana, Wyoming plains and you can glass them up a mile away and it's wide open. And where we were hunting, I mean, there was most of the time we had very limited sight visibility because it's so thick, but that's what the elk loved. And that was their bedding and rutting area. And it seemed like that's where they loved to always congregate was in that super thick, nasty stuff. Yeah. And I think that creates a quite, quite the story. Like you're saying, if you have a good story behind your hunt and, and a bull that steps out, you take that. Um, to me, that's that's a greater story than I can say. I went and glassed an elk that was laying down in this big open prairie, or you know, up on a hill, and snuck within sixty yards. And then he stands up, and I take a shot at him at sixty yards. This is up close and personal, and you just so many variables come into play. I think it's, I think it's so far, it's the greatest way that I, the most fun I had is spend those mornings where they've been like that. So. Absolutely. Then I think something else that we kind of notice is each bull elk kind of has a different personality and they sound different. So what was your, you know, as we watch videos, it seems like every elk sounds exactly the same. We go down and just pick up a bugle and make it. And that's what every elk sounds like. But I think you kind of experienced and I experienced is every elk has a different personality and sound and they all kind of do things a little bit different, how they bugle and growl and grunt and all that other stuff. Yeah, I, I, like you said, I think the expectation was every almost every elk sounds the same, and uh, that's definitely definitely wasn't the case. And it became easier for me to pick up on, you know, if one bugles over here, one over here, and one over there, um, Mike and Brian would be pointing at the one over, you know, 
over there, and that would be the one we we're going to go go after. The you know you guys would say that's the one we want. We want to try to get on because it's definitely like a deeper deeper tone, deeper growl, more raspy. Um, and I know that's not always the case, but from the sounds of it, that's usually the more mature bulls that'll do that, and that's the one we we're going to go after. And the wind was right and favorable, so um, it's definitely very different hearing it in person as opposed to watching it on on flat screen TV. So. Yep, yep, absolutely. And how I kind of relate it is as uh, a thirteen year old going through puberty, and they get that, "Hey, how you doing today?" You know that that that's usually those smaller bulls. <laughs> you know, we hear those. You know, but. Then you get those old, crusty, grumpy guys, hey, how are you doing? Or those old chain smokers, you know. That's kind of what we're right. always looking for, you know. I got a right. two-part yeah. question for you guys. Um, when you guys, Kyle, I know from a tree stand aspect, obviously you, you have your shooting lanes and whatnot, and you probably have a rangefinder. Did you use the rangefinder so when you guys come to a stop or when you guys come to an area that you hope that that bull comes out to, are you pre-ranging – um, objects in front of you to see how far or are you good at guesstimating your yardage ahead of time? Um, we are, or we're arranging. I do have a range finder. Brian has one built into his binos. So that's a huge, that makes it really simple for me. Brian will tell me that's 40 yards or set your pin to 40. You know, and that tree's 50, that tree's 30. So I have an idea um, of preset where we believe our shooting are and where we believe those elk are going to come out at to present a shot. So yeah, they are, they are pre-ranged um, for the most part. I mean, on the four hunts that we, for the four days that we spent so far up there hunting, uh, we were blessed to have Mike along. So we had uh, the three of us there. So usually like the setups we were doing, we would get as close as we could without bumping the elk, um, trying to get in tight. And then, uh, we'd either have Mike fall back or Mark, uh, Mike would stay in place. And me and Kyle would kind of slowly Indian sneak up, you know, in our 20, 30 yards best we could without bumping anything. Um, so that worked really well, just having the three guys. Because we had the caller, you know, Mike was behind us calling. So that way the int- attention wasn't necessarily on me and Kyle. All the attention was back towards Mike's area. Yep. And then, you know, we'll get kind of find those cedar thickets are hard, um, especially when you're in that pinion cedar country. But, you know, me and Kyle would try to find a spot or, you know, a little bit of brush or tree that at least gave us a little bit of shooting lane. And then, you know, kind of get Kyle down and where he could swivel back and forth without making a ton of noise. And then the benefit of having three guys is Kyle can sit there kind of scanning with his eyes and he's going through, you know, everything he needs to in his mind to keep him calm to be ready to shoot. Well, I'm sitting there next to him and I'm looking down the shooting lanes and getting all the ranges for him. So it's just one last thing Kyle has to worry about um, in case a shot opportunity per, uh, presents itself on the fly. Um, I'm right next to Kyle so I can whisper in his ear like, hey, you know, the right shooting lane is 40 or 30 or, you know, this pile of brushes, this distance, um, you know, Kyle shooting at HA, HHA single pin site. So um, judging my experience of hunting elk, I, you know, trying to judge, you know, where that bull is going to come through, whether it's going to be 50 
40, 30, whatever, um, to kind of set Kyle's pin for a set range. Like if we're in those Cedar Thickets, a lot of time it was 30 yards. Um, and just get him prepped. So he's focusing on his bow and his routine. And I'm the one kind of in the, you know, I'm the middleman, not doing a whole lot. It was mainly Kyle and Mike doing most of the work on those four days. And I'm just there making sure, you know, ranging that way when the elk does, you know, I was always ready that if that elk did come out and give us a shot, even if it was, you know, a couple seconds, no seer tickets, um, I was ready to go and give Kyle an up-to-date range so he knew if he had to hold a little high, a little low, um, depending on what his pin was sighted in or set for, I should say. Right. Um, so that's kind of how we did it on those four days. Um, you know, I was mainly the range, range finder guy. Mike was the caller and stuff. You, you definitely get a benefit when you're hunting with three guys. Obviously, there's a little bit more noise, a little bit more scent. But my personal opinion is, you know, having three guys definitely the, the positives outweigh the negative. Um, Agreed. Just having that guy next to you, A, helps keep you calm, kind of talk you through everything, let alone the shooter is not worried about trying to get fumble with the rangefinder while he's got a release hooked up or whatever. I mean, when we had those bowls close, I mean, Kyle was able to hook up to the string. Both his hands were occupied with the bow. So it wasn't like he was going to be able to get to his range finder in a hurry. Right. Um, having that third guy, that made a huge difference. The teamwork's huge. Teamwork is huge. Absolutely. It goes back to having that that confidence of relying on whoever's got your back and that the reassurance that the guy right next to you, you could ask him a quick question. I mean, obviously you're, you know, we're whispering or trying to minimize any conversations out there, but it just gives that reassurance you got. The bull concentrating on Mike, who's calling, you know, 30, 40, 50 yards behind you off to the left or off to the right. And hopefully, you know, he's looking for that sound of that cow and not uh, not looking at Kyle when he's drawn back because we're glass half full kind of people. And we know you're going to capitalize on a big bull when you guys go back up there. So you're going to go back up. You're going to be positive. You're going to do that combat breathing and in through your nose and out through your mouth and you're going to settle that pin right on the vitals and we know you're going to have a, a blast once that guy once that big boy hits the ground then you really want mike and other people up there to help you pack it out right absolutely can you yeah, guys I mean, go ahead no i mean touch on that a little bit i mean you know we had those four days um the elk rut at least in that part of the state is, you know, starting to ramp up, but the bulls weren't all that aggressive yet. They were very vocal, but they just weren't super aggressive to call in. And, uh, even the afternoon, I mean, most of the elk were hitting water, uh, after dark, they're pretty much nocturnal at that point yet. Um, I had to come back to take care of some work stuff and, uh, some family stuff with my kids. Um, so we made the decision instead of leaving Kyle there by himself, um, that me and him, you know, obviously we both could, uh, you know, Kyle was able to kind of chill at the house here and recoup and, you know, relax from, you know, doing those nine miles every morning, you know, and I was obviously doing some work stuff, but I was able to get a good shower and sleep in my bed again, kind of let my body recover from the wear and tear, um, both mine and Kyle's knees and back and stuff. 
um, can only take so much for pounding. Oh, yeah. Um, so just, you know, kind of being able to refit gear, you know, and get everything reorganized. You know, while I was working, Kyle was here at the house shooting his bow, you know, building up that confidence. Um, we're going to roll back up there today, um, roll in fresh, um, ready to rock and roll. Um, versus you know being beat down and tired, so I love we're it. Going to go in there, have a, have a great time. It's going to be a great time, no matter what. You're in God's country, and I'm sure Kyle, the first time you saw a big seven, eight hundred pound uh, mature bull, it's it's a sight. Plus, feeling that, like you said, your words, feeling that growl, feeling that bugle in your soul, having you in the back of the the neck, the hair on the back of your neck stand up and and then seeing something that huge on um, standing up on its hooves and knowing that you'll be able to harvest a, a mature bull and bring a lot of that meat home or all of that meat home if you're if you're not sharing with Brian. <laughs> I think if I buy home a little bit, I think I should maybe consider a little bit and leaving here. Plus, I get all that gear. I got to bring back my uh, my baggage fees might be pretty uh, astronomical. By that, so. Probably. Um, Can you leave us yeah. with? Um, I know we're cutting it short on time. We want you guys to get back up there. It's uh, it's prime time. Can you guys leave us with any parting words or any any words of advice for other uh, new elk hunters that haven't experienced Western game, Western big game hunting? From my aspect, um, you know, especially if you're coming from out of state, you never hunted, you know, Western animals before or whatever. Um, try to talk to somebody. Um, that lives in that state, whether it's friends, friend of friends, um, you know, social media is kind of hit and miss. Um, everybody wants to be a keyboard warrior, as they call it, you know, so social media is great. You know, I, I've contacted, you know, numerous guys privately when they ask questions, you know, on social media, just because they're taking a beating in the comment section. Um, just it's the way it is now, apparently, but unfortunately, you know, I, I, yeah, I try to help everybody, you know, if you got questions. I mean, that's the biggest thing I think is don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, even if you are a resident, you know, and you're having a hard time, whether it's Cavalina, Elk, Deer, talk to somebody that either been more successful at it um, or whatever, because you can always learn something. I mean, it doesn't matter, at least that's my opinion, it doesn't matter how old you are, how many times, you know, you've been out and doing it how many animals you got in the freezer or on the wall, um, you can always learn something. It doesn't matter if you're 15 years old or 80. Um, 100%. I, th- I think uh, making sure you're always open to new ideas and stuff like that and, you know, taking advice when it's given, you know, I think that's what makes more people successful out there. And in the end, it's all about, you know, friendships, uh, you know, hanging out with your buddies, um, you know, just getting it done. Um, that that's the fun part. Yeah, I mean, having a solo hunt and clearing your mind and not thinking about work and whatnot is one thing, but there's nothing like coming back to a big camp and sharing those stories and reliving the days, memories and whatnot, and having that big camp sitting around campfire or uh, just cooking dinner at night because Mike is a great cook, especially his elk chili and all of his his. Uh, peppers that he puts in everything because mike loves everything with a little extra spice or even a ton of spice but mike is a great great cook and chef so 
nothing like that fellowship of a huge group hunt and uh, everybody shares in the success. Right. Um, this is Kyle. I guess the last thing to answer your question to leave, leave with is uh, if, if someone's coming down to do a hunt, the biggest thing I can tell them is shoot, shoot, and shoot some more and just get your body used to walking a lot. And then, you know, I just want to say how grateful I am for CHA, Mike, um, obviously Brian. It wouldn't have been possible without him doing this. And Eddie Corona with uh, with being how generous he was to get that tag to me, I, I really do truly feel blessed that I got this opportunity. And I would say if anybody's coming down first time hunting, just take it all in, even if you, if you if you put one to the ground or not, just take it all in and enjoy this experience because it's for some of us a once in a lifetime thing. And try to take lots of, lots of pictures and video because I'm bad at that, so I'm trying to get better at that. Just to, just to refresh that memory of certain little things. So definitely, I always I always have to remind Mike to turn the to turn the ringer off and to turn the camera on. <laughs> I'll say that to myself every morning now. Yeah. Mike, you want to leave us uh, with a prayer, please? All right, uh, sure can. Uh, Lord God, we just uh, we love you, Lord, for your creation, Lord, and and uh, the idea of fellowship that you've that you instilled in all of us that men can come together, Lord, and, and ladies, and we can come together and, and share um, passions and love and the outdoors, Lord, that that you created, Lord, and. Even though I never knew Kyle, Lord, never even spoke to him till the day that I met him. What an awesome individual, Lord, that has served his country mightily, Lord. He did three tours overseas, Lord, protecting us as our freedom. Um, you know, I know there was times, Lord, I was sitting in camp and I would get teary-eyed and not after my eyes. They didn't know I was getting teary-eyed. I just listened to their stories. And, and Lord, I just ask that you would just bless all the veterans out there, Lord. And, and Brian's a veteran, Lord. And I just ask that all of these veterans, Lord, that are across our world protecting, wherever they're protecting, I know it's not just the United States, but it's these other countries, Lord, that are serving mightily, Lord. I just ask that you would just bless them mentally, physically, Lord, and just uh, give them a spirit, of, a newness, Lord, to know that you're in control, Lord, and that they can rely on you, Lord, and give them hope and just give them direction and to find things that that they find enjoyable, Lord, that just allows them to feel normal. And as I, as I learned... When our military are in these different combats and different things, Lord, it does create a heavy burden. I just ask that your hand of protection be upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.